A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Tuesday morning, uh, the 4th of December. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. There's been another petrol bomb attack in Drogheda. As you've been hearing, fire crews were called to Moneymore shortly after a quarter past ten last night. Uh, Councillor Richie Culhan, Fine Gael Councillor and former Garda detective joins us now. Uh, very hard to believe that this is happening uh, given the level of policing in the town, Richie? Yeah, well, look, I mean, unfortunately, Michael, it's become the norm now in this in this particular area. And, of course, it's perpetrated by, by a few criminal thugs that uh, that want to make life hell for people in, in, in Moneymore, the decent people in Moneymore. Um, I'm not sure in relation to this particular bomb or petrol bomb whether it was a vacant house. I think some, some people suggested it was a vacant house. I'm not quite sure about that. However, you know, as I said, once again, we see this proliferation of antisocial behaviour. Uh, and criminality, criminality, and and uh, you know, it's as I said, it's perpetrated by a small group of of people committed to committed to this mayhem. Um, Gardaí can only do so much, uh, Michael. And regardless of how many Gardaí you have on the streets in in Moneymore, it's very difficult to be everywhere at the same time. And the only way that these thugs will be actually stopped if if people residing in the area, and these guys are known. People residing in the area for money more report this criminal activity to the Gardaí. And when I say reporters, I mean any suspicious activity that they see, the movement of those criminals that are responsible for this behaviour. If they pick up a confidential line, the people of money more deserve mm. a much better uh, life than they're having at the moment because people are actually afraid to go out on the street at, after dark. No, sure, it's and, crazy. And this is, this uh, but, is absolutely but, but, horrific. But your understanding is that this was an empty house. Why would they attack an empty house? <clears throat> Look, I mean, it's just part of the part and parcel of what's going on there with these few people that are, as I said, that are causing mayhem in the estate. Um, I, 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 I mean, there's no rationale behind, hmm. you know, what these people do. You know, the one thing that I would say, and I mean, I know that they have called for information in relation to these people, but I would be calling on the mothers and the fathers brothers or sisters, of these people that are involved in this. Because if this is allowed to continue, it's inevitable that at some stage we're going to have a loss of life. And it could be your son, it Mm. could be your daughter, it could be your brother, sister, mother or father. So it is absolutely essential that that people that know what's going on, and there are people, I mean, it's very, very blatantly obvious, Mm. there are people that know these people, know what they're up to. And if it takes a mother to, you know, report her son... 
involved in criminal activity, you could actually save a life going down the road. Maybe the same son's life, for that matter. Like, uh, and exactly. The thing about it is uh, that uh, perhaps there was nobody in the house, uh, nobody officially living there, so let's hope that nobody was upstairs, uh, because uh, as it's reported this morning, this petrol bomb was thrown into the downstairs sitting room. Well, I mean, that's, that's, I mean, it's, it's so worrying, you know, I mean, that, that as I said, this proliferation of, of petrol bombing and antisocial behavior that's mm. going on. And, you know, you know, apart from police saturation in the area where you have guards walking on absolutely every street, which is, isn't, which isn't, you know, it's not, uh, it's not, it, it's, it's not, um, the guards aren't capable of putting that many guards in there. Mm. Um, and that would be totally unacceptable. It'd be, it'd be, it becomes a police state almost at that stage. And, you know, as I said, the, the the only people that can solve this are the good people of Moneymore. All right, well, let's so, uh, let's speak to the good people of Moneymore, to the mothers, as you say, in particular, or to young people if they're listening to us and may not realise just how dangerous what they're doing actually is. This is how dangerous it is, according to the Chief Fire Officer for County Louth. You know, if there was no petrol bomb uh, thrown at the house, uh, if there was an ordinary fire uh, in the kitchen at night, uh, that's a, that is a, a risk to the uh, uh, to the safety of people in bed upstairs. It's worse where, where there's a much larger fire resulting from a petrol bomb, which immediately ignites furniture, and and the fire is so intense that it's much harder for the occupants upstairs to get out. So it is a, it is by much higher uh, risk even than ordinary house fires which are the highest risk that we have because most people die in, in house fires than in any other type of incident. Right, and quite often these attacks are late at night when people are upstairs in bed asleep and uh, the accelerant is thrown through a downstairs window causing a, a fire. Uh, so that is the risk. It's completely that... irresponsible, completely... Uh, there's no defence whatsoever for us. Would you liken it to firing a gun at somebody? Uh, it would almost amount to the same thing um, if there are people upstairs in the house, yes. Mm. It's just that it's food for thought because, you know, I think there's a lot of bravado involved in all of this and people are, are trying to, you know, show their muscle and that sort of thing and perhaps they don't intend to kill somebody. But uh, as the chief fire officer for the county, uh, you're putting that down as a marker for people today to tell them that if they do throw a petrol bomb at a house, uh, they might as well shoot somebody. Or try to shoot. Absolutely, the, the, the worst risk, uh, fire safety risk, is when people are asleep, uh, and doing that is just indefensible, and this is a direct life safety threat to people. Eamon Wolf, the Chief Fire Officer for County Loud, speaking to me last Friday, putting into context what you were saying, Richie Colhan, about uh, the risk to life and that somebody may end up dead as a result of this type of behaviour. Well, of course. I mean, it's, 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 as I said, it's only a matter of time, Michael, before before somebody loses their life uh, in a situation like this. You throw a petrol bomb into a house, and consider this. Consider the, an elderly person upstairs in bed. They can't move as quickly as they would like to. If there are children in the house, if people don't wake up and hear this actual fire, uh, uh, you know, their, their, their living room burning downstairs, it's inevitable, absolutely inevitable, that somebody is going to die if this is allowed to continue. And as I said a few minutes ago, I'm appealing to the people that have information that know uh, these people that are involved in this and that give that information to the guards because you might save their life or you might, or you certainly will save the life of some innocent person uh, that's, that's residing in Moneymore and nobody wants to see that.
Well, certainly not, uh, but that is the risk. And uh, as long as uh, this activity goes on, uh, undoubtedly uh, that continues to be the case. But uh, obviously these people are fearless. I I mean, you say the guards can't be there all the time and that uh, the area is only policed to a certain degree, but many people will feel that the area is crawling with cops, if you like. Uh, And if people believe that there is such a strong police force, then they probably have no fear. Well, you know, these, these these people that are, as I said, perpetrating these crimes against the people of Moneymore, they have no fear of the Gardaí, you know. I mean, many of them, in actual fact, are probably younger, being directed by older people, um, you know, into this uh, to, to perform this criminal activity. And, you know, they don't really understand the implications of what they're actually doing and the consequences of their actions. So... You know, it's it's absolutely essential. You know, as I said, Gardaí can't be on every street, mm. every minute of the day, all night. They can't. It's impossible. You can't. You don't have it in any jurisdiction where you have a situation like that. Uh, so, so Gardaí depend on the information they receive to act uh, and deal with these tugs that are as I said, causing people's lives uh, untold damage in, in money more. And what are you hearing about this ongoing feud? Uh, is, is it still alive? Well, you know, my information is that it is still alive and it'll continue until, you know, many of the people that direct this uh, this feud um, are dealt with and put behind bars. The Gerdy have done a fantastic job in, you know, making arrests uh, uh, last week or a couple of weeks ago uh, after that incident in Moneymore. Um, now, that would that obviously have to come before the courts. Um, hopefully those individuals will be dealt with severely. Um but, you know, it's, it will continue as long as people decide that, you know, they're going to direct this uh, this type of terrorism, I'd call it, um, and until they're actually dealt with. So, I mean, it, it doesn't look good for for the uh, for the area. It doesn't look good for money more especially, um, you know, when this is allowed to continue. And, I mean, when I say it's allowed to continue, it's allowed to continue by people that have information in relation to these people and fail to come forward with it. Because, as I said, it could be your daughter, your son, your mother, your mother, your father, uh, your uncle, your aunt. It, uh, you know, somebody is going to lose their life if this is allowed to continue. And the good people of Moneymore deserve better. OK, we'll leave it there for the moment. Thank you indeed, as always, for joining us. Richie Culhan is a Fine Gael councillor in Louth and a former Garda detective. Martin Mulligan was just 53 when he was stabbed to death in September of 2015. The taxi driver dropped off his last fare at about a quarter to two in the morning in Fork Hill. At three o'clock, his body was found with two stab wounds a short distance from his taxi at Carnmore. Last October, 24-year-old Joseph Hillen from Fork Hill was found guilty of his manslaughter. Yesterday, the Central Criminal Court heard five separate impact statements from his mother, his wife, daughters and siblings. Reporter Owen Reynolds was at the Central Criminal Court to hear the harrowing evidence. Uh, Yeah, I would say it was one of the most emotionally raw hearings that I have sat through in the courts. I think uh, uh, the daughters of Martin Mulligan and his wife, and indeed his siblings, who um, who also made a victim impact statement that was read to the court on their behalf, they made uh, extremely powerful and emotional statements. 
the daughters talked about uh, their dad in a very loving way. He appears to have been an extremely gregarious character, a man who was uh, very much loved by his community and a person who really involved himself in his community and in the lives of his family. Uh, his two daughters were utterly devastated, it seems, by his death. Um, they were, had a very close bond with him. Um, they saw him as not just a father, but a confidant, a, a close friend. Uh, they shared all of their moments with him. They even told us that as teenagers, when their other friends would, you know, would never want to speak to their parents, they were the ones who would always go to their father for uh, for any kind of advice that they might need or to tell them about any problems that they had. And he had this special way of making problems seem to disappear. He was uh, uh, a funny man, a, a guy mm-hmm. who could turn all those problems just into into something to laugh about and make them realize that there are there are more important things in life and that any of these trivial problems that they thought they had were, were not worth worrying about. Um, his wife said that they met when they were uh, both teenagers, one of them 15, the other 16. She spent her entire life with them, and indeed they were looking forward to their 30th wedding anniversary when he died. Um, he was a... Uh, he, he loved life. He also was a great help to his wife in every way. She talked about how he would clean uh, their home from top to bottom when she wasn't there, how he was very good doing laundry, things like that. He uh, he um, also thought about other people in a way that she said that most people wouldn't. Even she, she recalled one account where her she wanted to buy a car and she suggested that they get a people carrier. And Martin said, well, look, they're very nice cars, but your mother won't be able to get into it and out of it. And she said this was something that hadn't even crossed her mind, but it was the kind of thing that Martin would always think of. He was always thinking of other people. Um, so the, his daughters then talked about the moments in their life that he's going to miss, such as he has never he never got to meet his first grandson, who was named after him, uh, Martin Jay, and he they will he will never get to share in them walking up the aisle, all those things when they, that they really thought and never even imagined that they would they would go through without their father by their side. And now they, they even feel, I think it was, I think it was uh, Sharon who said that, uh, she, you know, she, she wouldn't ever be able to enjoy those moments again. They'll always be tinged with sadness. She said. Mm. The reality of an empty seat at the table is quite often families put as uh, it was interesting to read in your report as well as how as to how uh, Hillen's uh, solicitors asked uh, that the judge would take into account his youth when it came to sentencing uh, because Martin Mulligan uh, himself was a young man or a relatively young man at 53 uh, and uh, all the more difficult for his mother who also gave a, a statement to the court. That's correct. His mother did give a statement, and she, she, um, by by the accounts of others as well, has you know it has changed everyone's life, and everyone involved has become a different person. And of course, it's left left her extremely sad in her old age. She said that you know she, you should you should never die, you should never see your children die, mm. um, and it has really put a, a terrible sadness on her last, final years. And her her husband had died some years ago as well, so it's just contributed to that feeling of loneliness. She mentioned also that he used to, you know, he was obviously a very caring and loving son. He would go to uh, stay with her every Wednesday, and she said she always looked forward to those times that she got to spend with her son. And, of course, all of that is is gone now. Dreadful, really dreadful altogether for the whole family. Martin Mulligan, uh, who was 53, encountered Joseph Hillen, aged 24, in September of 2015. Uh, And Hillen thought that he 
was illegally dumping rubbish, was it? That's what she said in statements to the Gardaí uh, earlier this year. He said that he, the, the, there was land there belonging to a friend of Mr. Hillen, uh, and there had been a problem with illegal dumping on this site. In fact, there had been a complaint made by the owner of the land to Lead County Council only a, a couple of weeks prior to this incident about illegal dumping at the site. Uh, so Hillen, Mr. Hillen said that he was driving by this uh, this area late late at night or in the very, very early hours of the morning, and he saw someone who he believed to be dumping rubbish out of the boot of his car. Um, he, he said that there was an argument that uh, the driver of that car, who we obviously know now as Martin Mulligan, drove off. Uh, Joseph Hillen followed him, uh, and then both cars stopped. Now, what happened after that is really can only really be gleaned from Joseph Hillen's statements, but what he said is that there was a scuffle uh, a few different incidents happened, but in the end of it, a knife was pulled, he says, by Martin Mulligan, and that he, Joseph Hillen, managed to flip the knife, and uh, he says he jabbed out twice as he felt he was under attack, um, and that the in jabbing out twice, he inflicted the two fatal wounds. The decision by the jury to find him guilty of manslaughter, not murder, was based on the idea that he was acting in self-defence, and that he used excessive force in doing so. That's own Reynolds, news reporter at uh, the Central Criminal Court in Dublin, speaking to me before we came on air today. Michael, Michael Reed, Reed on, on LMFM. LMFM. Now, 40% or thereabouts of asylum seekers in this country have been living in direct provision for two years or more. Some people spend more time in these accommodation centres, two and three years, and some for seven years or even longer. These are uh, according to figures uh, that were obtained by RTE. Let's talk about this with Nick Henderson, who's uh, the Chief Executive Officer with the Irish Refugee Council. Good morning to you, Nick, and thanks uh, for joining us, as always, on uh, the programme uh, this morning. Is there any surprise in these statistics for you? There's not a surprise, unfortunately, Michael, and thanks for having me on. Uh, the number of people in direct provision has been slowly creeping up over the last 18 months. Uh, last available figures, which were published by the Irish Times, yesterday suggests that there is around 6,000 people in direct provision uh, and for various reasons both because of delays in the system in and by that I mean that it's taking longer for asylum applications to be processed and then at the other end when people do get status uh, it's becoming harder to leave because of the housing crisis that's resulting in more people uh, spending longer periods of time in direct provision. Uh, And when you talk about a figure of 6,000, you're talking about almost full capacity. Yeah, and that's another issue is that uh, the way the state has designed the direct provision uh, system is that there's been uh, little margin for error. There's not been much capacity in the system to address in a situation like this. So, for example, the Irish Times reported yesterday that there's something like 5,928 people in direct provision and there's 6,200 beds. But in reality, there's actually fewer vacancies than that. And the last available public statistics that we have from July uh, were that there were only 52 vacancies. And this is really problematic uh, because we would describe it as an almost managed emergency situation where people are being shuffled around uh, the system, being moved to different parts of the country. And then as a consequence, because the state has a responsibility to accommodate people when they come here 
seeking asylum, and we would say that's a good thing, an important thing, because people come with with little, if nothing at all. Um, This situation has resulted in the state having to open centres in very remote parts of Ireland. Uh, For example, Moville, which you would have seen in the news two weeks ago because of the arson attack there, and then Mm -hmm. also places like Kenmare and Listenrana. Okay, that arson uh, attack uh, was a story in itself, wasn't it, Nick? Yeah, it was. It was very, uh, we described it uh, as a poisonous act, uh, but I think it's in no way representative of the community in Donegal or at all of the the welcome that Irish people have given to uh, asylum seekers for the last 20 years. Um, it, it was uh, an incident that you know could be overshadowed by the the, the huge support, welcome, and, and integration that communities have opened up to people seeking asylum. Um, so yeah, it should be condemned, and I, and I think it was condemned by all sides. Really, the government were very critical of it, um, and it, and I think actually it's, it's galvanised the community up in Moville. Uh, I've been in touch with them several times over the last two weeks and that they are really preparing themselves well and ready to give a, a warm, as warm a welcome as possible. Mm. I think that that incident, though, um, should be set aside from the, 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 the legitimate concerns that that community have about, a communi- about asylum seekers being placed in somewhere so remote. Uh, we did a, a piece on social media just stating how long it takes to get from somewhere like Moville to Dublin. And our point was that regardless of the warm welcome that communities can give, that doesn't make up for the, for the isolation somebody may feel. And the, the simple difficulties that they may have in having to travel to Dublin, and people in the asylum process have to travel for various reasons, for interviews, to meet a lawyer, for medical appointments. And I think it takes something like 10 hours to get from Mobile to Dublin, and that includes uh, travel into Northern Ireland, which, without the permission of the of the government, is actually illegal for someone in the asylum process. Uh, and indeed, uh, the impact that it has on the local community and how a place literally changes uh, from what people would have known it to be forever in the past uh, into something completely different al- almost overnight. Yeah, I think we would also though caution on on that to to a point. In our experience, when people have been in Ireland seeking asylum and and they've been placed with and put next to very remote rural communities in the past, this isn't unusual necessarily, Mm. that people have actually contributed hugely back into the community. Um, There's various examples of community gardens, of kitchens, uh, of different initiatives done by people in the asylum process themselves to integrate back into to Irish society. Um, it, and um, let's not also forget that there is a, a small economic um, advantage possibly to the community of Mobile. People in the asylum process are given a, a small stipend uh, and that will presumably be spent in the local area. Um, and, um, you know, the, the life can be brought back into communities that have been been quite isolated or, um, or, or, or suffering from some sort of uh, recession. Um, I think it 
so the, so I think it's important to to show and to, to talk about those things, not just the, uh, any pressure that a community would be put under. Yeah, or the pressure the government is put under and how this can happen, sometimes at least without planning uh, and because uh, a building has become available, a hotel that has gone out of business sees a steady income stream as a result of handing it over to the state. Yeah, we've been forced into this situation by the process of direct provision, which has been uh, reliant on private contractors, people, uh, for example, who have a hotel or a building uh, that can be quickly turned into an accommodation centre. Uh, and that has resulted in us relying on places like uh, hotels in, 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 or disused hotels in remoter parts of the country. We would say that there needs to be a fundamental overhaul of how accommodation is delivered to people, uh, and that would include trying to bring in non-profit housing providers uh, to pr- provide accommodation for the state to consider building its own accommodation and it's this isn't that there hasn't been a budget uh, and money spent on this issue in the past we've spent a lot of money on asylum accommodation Uh, i think the point has been that we haven't spent it well either to the benefit necessarily of the individual in the asylum process or the irish public in that this money has gone straight to the to the pockets of uh private contractors it's very hard, I think, for us to understand how they live, if I can put it that way. In a, a country of four million people, we're talking about such a, a small amount of uh, people, 6,000 people who live in uh, these direct provision centres, and about a third of those are children, 2,000 children in that situation. But there's a, a, another story today uh, with figures released yesterday from the ESRI of uh, the number of unaccompanied minors coming to the country, how that's increased by 80%. <coughs> excuse me, 175 children altogether who have come to the country uh, and they go into care uh, but once they reach 18 then they go into direct provision. That must be an incredible change in their lifestyles. Indeed, yeah. If they're not recognised as a refugee when they're a minor, when they're a child, they would be going into direct provision. If they are recognised as a refugee they would finish their period in care when they turn 18 uh, and then uh, be assisted to, to integrate into the wider community. But sure, you're right. If they're not recognised as a refugee, they would go into direct provision. And we've worked with people in that situation, and it can be pretty brutal, to be honest with you, because uh, the, the, the care process for people in the asylum process has actually been quite good. It's improved over recent years. Uh, but what we, we would describe it as horizons closing down. Mm-hmm. Uh, when they reach the age of 18, uh, they're put into a direct provision center. They may not be able to work. Uh, they, uh, their further and higher education opportunities uh, begin to uh, shut down. There's fewer opportunities there. So it can be a very challenging mm-hmm. experience. And many of these people are granted refugee status, generally speaking. Uh, I mean, we're talking about 6,000 people in uh, direct provision, and last year 900 people received refugee status. Yeah, indeed, yes. So a large number of people, I think the, the current recognition rate is around 30% of all asylum applications, which is, I suppose, just slightly under the European par, uh, according to the latest statistics we have. It's also worth pointing out that yeah there is around 600 people in direct provision with status. So they have actually refugee status mm. or another form of uh, status that they've been given by the state. And they they can practically leave um, or theoretically leave rather, but in practice, it's very difficult to do so because of the wider housing crisis. Mm, that's it. Uh, many would argue that they should be counted in the homeless 
uh, figures, uh, but we'll leave it there for the moment, Nick, and thank you indeed for joining us uh, this morning. Nick Henderson, Chief Executive Officer of the Irish Refugee Council. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now let's talk about uh, the dreaded B word uh, again and if uh, the thoughts of hearing the word Brexit makes you shudder, well you may be scared in fact to think uh, that the House of Commons is about to embark on five days of debate. Each debate is to last eight hours and we're joined by Marion Harkin, an independent member of the European Parliament. Good morning to you and uh, thanks for joining us. Uh, We've to get to those debates yet uh, because uh, there's a contempt of Parliament motion on whether the UK government broke the Parliament's rules by failing to publish the full legal advice it received on the Brexit plan. And I I gather that that could result in a vote before uh, the big vote, which will take place on Wednesday of next week. That's right. Um, The British Parliament uh, decided some time back that they wanted to see the full legal advice from uh, the Attorney General. Um, The the government, Mrs May, have decided not to publish all of the advice. Now, despite the fact that the uh, Attorney General spoke in the British Parliament yesterday, and he was very open and upfront about Mm. what... But nonetheless, to be honest, I perfectly understand parliamentarians asking to see that advice. I mean, the vote that uh, MPs will take in the House of Commons uh, will be perhaps one of the most important votes that any of them may ever cast. And I think, in all fairness, um, they have a right to expect that they would have access to the full legal advice from their legal experts before they would be asked uh, to make that choice. So um, I can fully understand and appreciate what they're doing. If I was there, I'd be looking for the same thing. Okay, but even uh, if uh, the majority say uh, that it has been contempt, uh, it will amount to little more than a slap on the wrist uh, for the government, will it? Well, I suppose in in a way, um, Theresa May knows that if if she doesn't publish it, if her government doesn't, that that then gives uh, those who are probably going to vote against her deal anyway cover to do so. Uh, Because they can say quite rightly, uh, you know, I'm not voting for a pig in a poke, basically. I need to know what's on the table. And this vote is much too important not to have uh, full access to all the legal advice. So she's caught, she's caught in a, in a bind. And one has to ask the question, why are they not publishing the full legal advice? I mean, is there something in there that mm. we're not aware of, we don't know? Because, as I said, you know, the Attorney General yesterday, Geoffrey Cox, was quite clear in the House of Commons. He said, you know, he said that he made no bones about it Mm. Um, as far as the backstop was concerned. He said he would have preferred to have seen a situation where the UK on its own could say, right, enough is enough, that's the end of the backstop. But he said that was not possible. And he also said, I suppose what we have known for a long time, is that Britain could remain in the single market indefinitely if um, there isn't 
a trade deal, etc., that would negate any reason for the backstop. So the mm. backstop is the one issue that is at the core of the decision that people are making. And for us in Ireland, I mean, that's a double-edged sword. Yes, we're delighted and pleased that the backstop is there, that it's solid, and that it protects the Good Friday Agreement, no hardening of the border, etc. But also, it's, it's becoming more and more clear by the day, by the hour, that this is... Um, this part of the agreement is the big risk to um, the vote and perhaps even the possibility, though I, I still don't believe the probability, but the possibility that the UK could crash out. So we, we are very much the meat in the sandwich here and it's, it's coming down to the wire. Mm. And that's the calculated risk uh, the Attorney General said that MPs had to make. If you were making that risk on behalf of constituents in the UK who had voted for Brexit, how would you vote? That's it. I mean, um, if... Well, of course, it depends on your perspective. Uh, but as you say, if you come from a constituency that was strongly uh, pro-Brexit, Uh, And you know that Theresa May's deal has the potential, Mm. let's put it that way, has the potential to tie Britain to the EU um, indefinitely. Mm. Um, Then you would have to think very carefully about it. But remember this lots of people voted uh, Brexit uh, without actually knowing uh, what, what that future relationship would be. Would it be a complete clean cut and that Britain would be a third country? Uh, or was it something more along the, the Norway model, etc.? So lots of people voted both ways, mm. but without a clear view as to what the final outcome would be. So I suppose if you represented those people, you'd have to make your best judgments from speaking to them, from trying to... to speaking to business, speaking to agricultural interests, speaking to uh, working people, etc., you know, what their perspective was. It's a very difficult decision, absolutely very difficult. Um, But that's what parliaments are for at the end of the day, Mm. um, to take difficult decisions. The people voted, and now they have to try to, to ensure that that, that vote is is carried, if you like, or that the intent of that vote um, is becomes real. Um, but the question then is: There's a deal on the table. Will that satisfy it, or won't? Won't it? I mean, my view is May won't get the deal through. Um, I can't see it. I think this whole issue around the legal advice has made it even harder. Mm. And um, we're then there's then talk of a second vote. I don't mean a second referendum. I mean a second vote in the House of Commons. But my opinion, for what it's worth, is I don't think May can come back to the EU and get anything substantial. Because remember, this is boiling down largely to one issue. There aren't a number of issues where you can fudge a bit here and fudge a bit there. There can be no fudge on the backstop. So I, I don't see a second vote as... Um, really meaning anything. So I think we're looking 
either at a, a second referendum uh, or a crash out. And I think the, the British government won't do that, won't want to do it. So we're then looking maybe at extensions of time. And all I can say, Michael, is that last week, the week before, after the agreement was reached between Theresa May and um, the European Council, uh, talking to colleagues out here, mm. there was, in a way, a sense of relief it, it, to some extent. Well, that's done. You know, we don't like this. We don't want it. But we have no choice. Let's move on. So patience with this whole um, Brexit, if you like. I, I can't say it's wearing pin yet. But I can see that in six, nine months' time, if there isn't some kind of way forward, patients will have worn very thin. You see, it's different for people in Latvia, in Italy, mm. um, in Germany even, than it is for countries like Ireland, Belgium, the neighbours of the UK that will be hardest hit. Mm. So um, the British, one way or the other, have to bite the bullet. Go if you're going, because it's causing uncertainty for uh, even those who aren't as hard hit as Ireland would be, uh, but so important for us, quite obviously. But do you believe uh, that the extensions will run for as long as six or nine months? Well, there is a big issue with European elections uh, on the horizon, and the British have a right to have representatives in the Parliament, in the Council, in the Commission. Whether that can be fudged for a period of time, um, you know, I'm not sure, Michael. My instinct is that if it needs to be for a a three-month period or something like that, perhaps that could be done. Perhaps it can't be done, Mm. but perhaps it could be. And I think the will will be there to do it if we know that in that period of time, the British have put in place whether it's a second referendum or whether it's plans to leave, to crash out, whatever. If there is a timetable in place, if the British can say, we will stick to this timetable to do ABC, I believe there'll be enough goodwill here to uh, give an extension for a short period of time. Beyond that, um, I just don't know where it's going to go. Okay, well, it's... Uh, Full steam ahead until uh, the next obstacle uh, for the moment. Thank you, though, for joining us uh, this morning. Marion Harkin, Independent MEP for the Midlands Northwest constituency. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now let's find out what you've been saying to us. Marie Kearns joins us with some of the calls and text messages that have been coming to us this morning. Good morning to you, Marie. Good morning, Michael. And to all our listeners, Jim from Dunlear phoned in this morning. He was listening in to your interview with Councillor Richard Culhan in relation to the latest petrol bomb attack in Moneymore. And he just wanted to make the point that many years ago he lost his own mother in a house fire. He says it was an accident, but the point he wants to make is that the report that came back to them was that while his mother did make it out of her bed the point is that she did make it sadly out of the room and that the people that throw these petrol bombs do they not realise the damage they are doing and the potential it has to possibly kill somebody that it's it's like a game of Russian roulette but it seems that every chamber in the gun is loaded that they are very foolish 
because it's only when someone is killed and loses their lives that they really will realise the damage that was done. Well, well put and it echoes uh, what the Chief Fire Officer was saying as well. So I presume uh, we can assume that people are aware of the danger now at this stage. Paddy from Drogheda also got in touch and says if the Gardaí aren't able to control this problem in Drogheda, why not get the army in to assist them in tackling this. Okay. Moving on then to direct provision. Seamus McDonough from the Workers' Party was listening in and he just wanted uh, to mention that recently in Kells they had a meeting uh, where people in direct provision were invited along and says that it was a wonderful turnout. Couldn't believe how many turned up and it was heartbreaking is how he described listening to the personal stories of those in the direct provision system. He says that it was wonderful to see the coming together of the community, Michael, and that the people of Kells have given them a really good welcome and that several vo- people from the community uh, from that meeting have volunteered to take the families who are in direct provision to their homes on Christmas Day. Mm. So he thinks that if people, the personal stories are really worth listening to and that he feels that this would help communities understand what's going on. All right. Well, thanks uh, for that, Seamus. And uh, hold that thought for a moment, if you will, uh, Marie. We'll come back to some more of those calls in a minute. Uh, But let's talk uh, about uh, the Christmas season and indeed uh, the shopping that undoubtedly people have started at this stage. Many people will buy uh, gift cards as presents. And uh, there was hopes that new laws would change uh, the rules uh, that govern these uh, gift cards. And we're joined uh, by Dermot Jewell of the Consumers Association of Ireland. Good morning to you, Dermot, and thanks uh, for joining us here on the programme. People uh, have complained many times over the years uh, that uh, they go to uh, use the card and they've expired. Uh, There were uh, new laws uh, which would have seen expiry limits of less than five years uh, being prohibited and uh, also the elimination of maintenance fees, but they won't be introduced in time for Christmas, it seems. Morning, Mike. No, you're entirely right. They won't. Um, As you say, this started to all intents and purposes back in 2015 when there was a hope that some form of legislation could be brought into a predominantly retail determined um life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much like unexpected medical costs that's why united healthcare provides health protector guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs learn more at uh1.com Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. 
lifespan on whether it be credit notes, gift vouchers, or more importantly, the newer variation which you had, the gift cards. Now, I suppose gift cards would always have, have flagged as being probably an area where there would be difficulty for the simple reason being that they're sold, if you like, with a form of a guarantee whereby we've always argued, and everybody does, look, mm. if you have a credit note or a voucher, times are tough. Get rid of it. Use it as soon as you can because you never know is there a volatility behind the, the, the protection of your money. With the gift cards, the argument has always been put forward that, look, we do deduct after a year. If it's not used, we deduct what would be to all intents and purposes an administration charge. But part of that charge guarantee is that even if the company did fail miserably, your money is protected. But that also then led to the question of, well, you're the business. Surely you should be paying for the protection. We're just giving you money um, um, for, if you like, for cash flow for mm. a long period of time. And you can see now where in in the last number of months, because in July of this year, just so the listeners understand, the idea was, yes, we're going to put this all in place. The package will be great. Um, gift credit notes, gift vouchers, we'll, we'll certainly put a five-year term on them. But when it comes to gift cards, we'll iron something out between now and then. And what's happened in the last couple of weeks, it's come become very clear that, um, yes, credit notes, gift vouchers, we might get there. But gift cards, um, there's been a serious challenge um, from the business side saying, no, not happy don't want to accept this. Right, and uh, the main challenge uh, appears to be coming from one for all, does it? I, I think it is, yes. Uh, um, and, and I think those who, those others, like, for example, shopping centres, etc., who, it must be said, would charge significantly more on a monthly basis, um, I think are hanging back and waiting and watching to see what happens, Michael. Right, uh, and when you say one for all, uh, effectively you're talking about uh, multiple of Chamber of Commerce. Yes, very, very much so, and they're distributed through the Unpost system and a, 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 a company basically known as GVS Prepaid. So it's a it's a very strong, very big. It's well, it's grown phenomenally um, in in its attraction and its its um, its standing, and the amount of money taken in is quite quite significant. But yes, they're the organisation who basically have been fighting back, and predominantly through chambers. Right, uh, and when you say a significant uh, amount of money, uh, we're talking about in the region of six hundred million euro on an annual basis. Yes, and when you when you look to the reality of humanity behind that, and by that I mean people get cards, they go, fantastic, I'll put it away. They are easily inclined to forget about it because mm. they didn't pay for it, they got it as a gift. So I won't say it doesn't hold the same value, but you're inclined to mm. forget about it or put it away safely and then not remember where you, where you put it or what you did with it. And to all intents and purposes, it's, 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 a, it's a fantastic cash mm. cow over a period of time. And the interesting thing, the statistic I don't know, Michael, mm. and I'm not sure if anybody else does, is how many cars are never redeemed? Mm. Um, well, that's a, that's know, a very valid point. You know. Yeah. So, 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 so forgive me for being stupid and explain to me what the argument against these measures is. Because, I mean, effectively, somebody gives somebody else money. Yeah. I mean, quite often you would think that, uh, you know, they're doing you a favour, that instead of going back to them with the money, 
uh, that you're looking for something for nothing. Yes, I you know. <laughs> it's it's. I appreciate that. Um, the the difficulty is in the terms which are look. I've given you it. You see, in in general, it's it's looked upon as the credit note voucher element, which is mm. I give you money. Surely, before you start deducting money, you can acknowledge that I've given you the money in mm. advance. I haven't used it. You're holding and, the money for me. You're, you're holding, and the I'm money coming yet. back to take it back. Exactly, and you're getting the benefit of using it for a, a long period of time. Why am I having to pay? Oh, most of the, the the initial question was why is it devaluing after twelve months to mm. nil? And that's where you see the, the 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 one for all come in. They go, yeah, we looked at that and we didn't think it was fair either. So rather than devaluing it to nil, we will mind it for you. And of course, there's an admin charge because we mm. mind it, and we also guarantee it's never going. An to admin it. charge for interest that they're earning yeah. on it. Exactly. Now the the argument will come back. Who's earning decent interest these days? Yeah, I yep. acknowledge that. But that's not going to last day. That well, if you have 600 million euro, perhaps uh, you'll yeah. do better than most. Uh, right. And apart from that, as you say, a lot of these cards are not being redeemed at all. Yeah, no, not at all. And, and, and this is the reality of life. And again, you know, the, the, the element of goodwill from stores, A, it has, it has been acknowledged. And when I, sorry, mm. let me explain. When it came to credit notes and gift vouchers that had a, let's say, a six-month or a 12-month term, it is a reality and a fact of life that very, very many stores, more so now than ever because they realise the challenge of online trading, Mm. are more than happy. If it's two years, three years old, they have said to customers, oh, yeah, fine, welcome back. We're happy to give you the value for that, and we hope you come back the next time. And it's being used as a goodwill gesture in a way and a means of, of continuing to keep footfall in the door. So, you know, what they're completely at odds with the gift cards and the gift card element. Again, I'm not saying they're entirely wrong, mm. but some of the ways and the means through which the money is taken away and they become devalued um, and it's very definitively devalued. Just, it's, it's not sitting well. Just very briefly, Dermot, uh, advice for listeners uh, thinking of buying gift cards for this uh, Christmas. Look, if you're, not, if you're not going to give the cash to somebody, then you are going to buy a gift card, then check exactly what are the terms and conditions because, as I say, some, of, some shopping centres will deduct after 12 months €3 Euro per month. So if that's €50 Euro of a voucher, um, 36 of it will be gone if the poor unfortunate person you've given it to can't remember what they did with the card. <laughs> All right, we'll leave it on that note. Thanks indeed. As always, Dermot Jewell, consumer uh, of the Consumers Association of Ireland. Now let's go back uh, to more of your thoughts and comments. Marie, what else have you got for us? Yeah, we can just go back, Michael, to the conversation around direct provision. Tony from County Loud texts in and he says, surely one of the main reasons people spend so long in direct provision is the can- countless number of appeals that we seem to have in this country which have to join the queue in an already busy legal system all the way to the Supreme Court and even then we have things like schools and pressure groups intervening in the decision if they don't agree with it surely appeals shouldn't be confined to or shouldn't appeals be confined to one after the main decision and how do we compare it with other countries in this respect Tony wants to know okay. moving from that then to Brexit Seamus from Dundalk can't, can't see how Theresa May can get the Brexit deal across the line, doesn't think she has enough support and where will we be at the end of all of that? Hmm. 
Seamus wants to know. Okay. <laughs> I have some comments mm. left over from yesterday. If I can get to one or two of them, if we have the time. We had uh, Deputy Declan Bernach uh, speaking in relation to housing and Sheila was n- listening in to the discussion. She wants to know why councils around the country as she sees it, are dragging their heels when it comes to freezing, freeing up vacant houses on their books. We're in crisis mode at the minute with homelessness in this country, so the authorities should be working flat out to turn over houses at a faster pace and to help people get rehomed. OK, thanks for that. All right. And thanks to everybody who has been in touch with us. If you'd like to add to what's being said, as always, we'd love to hear from you. Our telephone number is, as always, 1850 Michael, Michael Reed on LMFM. Now we've a, an ongoing story that we'll return to now with the Labour Party councillor P.O. Smith who's come in to us once again to talk about the Rose Garden at Dominic's Park <laughs> in Drogheda. You mentioned this in passing sort of last week in discussions about uh, discretionary funding available uh, to Louth County Council and that it was your belief that they had spent €35,000 on the garden itself and we were somewhat flabbergasted mm. to hear that and we made contact with the council and they said it was €19,000. And we said €19,000, that's still an awful lot of money uh, on a, a flower bed. A beautiful flower bed, but a, a flower bed. And we asked them to tell us what the money was spent on and they said, no, we won't be telling you, we won't make anybody available and we won't be making any further comment on all of this. Uh, so that's kind of where we had left it with uh, the council and we decided to make contact with yourself and each member of Louth County Council to report the approach that the council was taken, taking to this media request, as well as all of uh, the Oireachtas members from County Louth. Uh, and uh, that's kind of where we're at at this stage. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, it's uh, been a, a story that uh, certainly has raised some questions. What are your thoughts on it this morning? <clears throat> well, it is a story that has raised some questions. I mean, all of the councillors, and I, I presume the Oireachtas members, have got a, an email back outlining the the cost involved in €19,173. Uh, the council is saying that this was at the request of the chair of the Tidy Towns Committee that this money was spent. Uh, my understanding at the time was that there was a group of individuals in Drogheda who were quite willing to spend their own money to create a, a, a rose garden mm. uh, as a symbol of the visit of the Prince of Monaco to the town. And the council stepped in and... Uh, the, indiv- the, the group of individuals were willing to put up thirty to 35000 and they were given a guarantee that if they were willing to spend that, the council could, could, could match that if they were to move to one side, <clears throat> which is what they did. I brought this up at a meeting in September of uh, Drodaburi Municipal District in discussion about how money could be moved around. The chief executive took, took exception to my phrase, how money could be moved around, and wanted an example. I gave the example of how money was taken to construct a rose garden, and I, I cited €30,000. Mm. She didn't deny that figure, but what she said was that uh, the money came out of the capital budget, and that was her prerogative to be able to allow that to happen. Uh, that may be the case, but I didn't know, and I don't think any other councillor knew that there was money available of €30,000 to be moved around like that. And this goes back to what we're talking about in relation to transparency because I spent a large part of Friday and all day Saturday with Councillor Mark Derry, Jim Tennedy and Colin Markey going through the budget line by line by line and going to a meeting then on Sunday night and then being told that the figures that we were working off were actually inaccurate. Mm. Uh, So, for example, there was... A figure of 91,000 against a shop front scheme. We were using that as discretionary spend to adjust the budget. 
And then we were told, well, no, it's not 91,000. It's a lot less than that. Mm. So, I mean, like, how can councils make informed decisions? We don't know exactly what's going on at budget time. And we've heard your frustration and the frustration of others on uh, the programme in the course of uh, the last week or two in the run-up to the budget finally being passed. Uh, But are you suggesting that this money was available from private sources, that the council didn't need to spend this money, that it decided to move in and say, well, look, instead of you spending the money, we'll spend the money. Because let's not forget the context that we're talking in here. We have all these rouse about parking charges uh, and services and so on but we're also uh, living in a county where people are without heat in their homes or repairs uh, carried out to their homes as the case may be Yeah well I mean there was a a group of private individuals who went to put the money up I mean I think I don't know what the protocol Mm. then is in relation to uh, a state visit and who has to pay for something Mm. but certainly uh, from what I understand uh, that the individuals are willing to pay for the Rose Garden. And the and council said, no, we'll pay for it. The council said, no, we'll pay for it. And they're saying in the letter, mm. their email this morning, that that was at the request of the chair of Draw the Tidy Towns. Uh, but the point about it is, I'm sure even the chair of Draw the Tidy Towns, if the money was coming from private sources, would have accepted it. Right. And you've seen this email. I haven't seen this email yet. It follows the request from LMFM and then how we reported that to all of the elected members and Rockers members for the county. And I know that many of the politicians have been in touch with the council executives and we think that as a result of that, the council has decided to make the information available to us. As I say, I've been in here since 9 o'clock. I'm not sure what time you got the email at, but I, I haven't seen it as yet. But I did speak with the local Fine Gael TD, Fergus O'Dowd, a little bit earlier on, who told me to expect this email. Yes, I was speaking to him on a different matter yesterday, and we started discussing the question of transparency and accountability, which is what it is. A request from the public or for a newspaper media or a radio or whatever, or from anybody, any citizen, is entitled to giving the full details of any expenditure by any local authority in the country. And I personally can't understand why that wasn't given to you initially, but I do understand that full details are on, on their way to you and that all of the costs and all of the transparency that everybody requires in relation to this or any other expenditure will, will be fully met. And also that um, you know, the appropriateness of, of having a good relationship, particularly with, with you know, professional communicators like yourself, I think is very, very important for all local authorities and indeed for politicians like myself as well, that we must be transparent, we must be accountable, mm. and you're entitled to ask fair and, and objective questions, which you do. So hopefully that will put an end to this matter. Yeah. Mm. It's, it's not acceptable that you weren't given that information initially. All right, uh, but it is the principle of it, uh, as you say, and uh, perhaps it is a justifiable spend, uh, perhaps not, but that is, I suppose, the purpose of asking questions about public yes. money and how it's being used. Uh, you've been given a, a breakdown of the costs. What's your assessment at this stage? Well, I, I, I don't have it literally in front of mm. me, but it seems like the there were, in fact, quotations sought and that all of the procurement uh, procedures were put in place. And obviously, clearly, the Rose Garden is will be blooming. You may not be blooming right now. I think it was there. It's, it's a very special reason why it's there initially. But it does add to the biodiversity and to the beauty 
of our town. So I don't oh, I, I'm, I'm its number one fan. I'm, I'm a huge yeah. fan. I really, I think it's fantastic. Uh, first, I realised that it was walking by it one day and I came onto the radio and uh, made special mention of it and uh, paid yeah. tribute to the people behind it. Uh, but uh, when P.O. Smith told us he believed it cost in the region of €35,000, uh, it certainly warranted questions. Uh, we've oh, been told subsequently since that it was 19000 uh, Again, that seems like an unimaginable spend on what is... Uh, a, a beautiful flower bed, but little more than a, a flower bed, uh, and that was the purpose of the questions. But we were stonewalled. Now, the principle in all of this is not that we didn't get answers or that we're stamping our feet. I don't think that's the principle anyway, and I certainly oh, hope it isn't. But it, but but it follows on from a series of complaints from councillors across the board of all parties, including Fine Gael, saying that they were continuously stonewalled by the council, in particular about discretionary spending. Uh, and that they weren't told what was available to them uh, and that quite often the money was spent before they were given an opportunity to consider how it was being spent. Well, the council, the elected members, are actually in charge legally. It is only their say-so, that is, from the past budget, as they did last Sunday night, then all expenditure in that budget is legal and is proper. Uh, and obviously, if they give powers to the council for discretionary spend, as obviously clearly you would have to inflict a number of cases, you have a, you know you, you know what your expenditure is going to be. Mm. But some other things arise, and you have to you know you have to expend more money than you expected. That's normal in every in everybody's life. But P.O. Smith, who's with us here in studio, you told us that you asked for a breakdown of how the money had been spent. Uh, on the Rose Garden, uh, and it's only this morning that you're receiving this information. Uh, I didn't ask for the breakdown. I, I brought it up at the, the September meeting, and mm. I was told, I, I mentioned the figure of 30,000, mm. and the chief executive said that she had taken uh, money from the capital budget and used it for the Rose Garden. Mm. Uh, n- at no time was I ever told that it was less than 30,000. And this is the first time I'm after getting a breakdown in relation to uh, how can, the 19,000 euro came about. Can you give us that breakdown? Uh, the contractor uh, was paid uh, 13, I'm just trying to get it up here sure, on, yeah. on mm-hmm. my phone. Uh, it goes back to the, the problem in relation to what you said earlier on is how do we actually... Uh, divide up the money mm. in Low County Council. So the cost of the Rose Garden and Drada was 19175 including VAT, made up of the landscape contract procured in accordance with the public sector procurement uh, agreement amounting to €13,447.18. The purchase and installation of the artwork incorporating the name of the garden at €5,107.50. The hire of a marquee for the opening day at €550.92 and the hire of a sound system for the opening day at €70. Okay. And what do you make of that? What I make of it is that I would like to know that there's money available, number Mm. one. I'd like to have a say in relation to where that money goes. Uh, If there was a situation where there was a group of private citizens who were willing to contribute to or cover the cost of a rose garden, uh, I would like the opportunity to be able to say if those citizens want to go ahead with that and the council could support them, because this is what we're about as mm. a council, uh, go ahead. If we have got 20000 to spend then elsewhere, then that's what we should do. But councils don't have that knowledge. They don't have that power. There is a, Local government really is in name only, in my view. Mm. Uh, we are rubber stamp councils. That's the way it's got. We have very little power now 
as at council level. And when you don't get accurate figures presented to you, that will allow you to make an informed decision about how a budget can be made. Well, then that undermines democracy, in my view. And we're in a serious situation now in Low County Council where the working relationship between the councillors and the chief executive is at near breaking point. That's how serious it is, in my view. Well, it's certainly the impression that we get from you and other councillors that we've been speaking to in the last week uh, and uh, the reason for getting this breakdown of uh, this particular spend uh, is uh, very questionable, I think, uh, as articulated by Fergus O'Dowd there. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, I mean, it's, like, if somebody requests, a pu- if a member of the public requests mm. how information, information in relation to how something was spent, they should be given it. It's as simple as that, because mm. basically I'm a councillor, I'm a member of the public. I don't have significantly more rights than you have mm. in relation to requesting information about how public money is spent. That's the reality. Yeah. That's my view. That's it's my not opinion. the secrets of Fatima. It's not absolutely. Mm. Yeah. I know. Uh, and whilst the spend may be justifiable or not, mm-hmm. uh, I suppose that's the purpose of, of the question. And uh, if it is justifiable, uh, there's no reason for not making that information available to people. No, I, I, like I mean, we were trying to balance the budget the weekend, <clears throat> and in fairness, to myself and Paul Bell, we were trying to protect the parking structure in in in, uh, in Drogheda. Now. Originally, when we sat down to uh, agree this, uh, we had an agreement with most of the councillors, but there was some of the dark councillors who wanted a different uh, structure. They wanted the pay, mm. free pay pack and draw the gun. But we could have achieved that because we could have <clears throat> moved money from the capital side over to the uh, town and village renewal scheme and cut the town and village renewal scheme that was under that heading. Mm. And that would have balanced the budget. But the problem for us is then when we come to actually doing the figures and getting an accurate figure of what we can actually move, we didn't have it. And that's the problem all around. And like even like with the Westgate Vision last year, there was 500,000 allocated to the Westgate Vision under development levies. You come and you look at the budget and you vote on that and you pass that and you expect that to happen. And then you look at the budget figures this year. Under the Westgate vision, you have a plan to spend 660,000 plus mm. euros, which is good. Mm. But the 500,000 that was there last year has been pulled back mm. because of the fact that the Urban Regeneration Fund is going to give something towards the Westgate vision. But if I voted on 500,000 to be given to the Westgate vision, plus money that comes from the Urban Regeneration Fund, that's nearly a million euros. Why isn't that being all put together? I asked the question three times on, on Sunday even, and I wasn't given an adequate answer. I brought it up again last night, and I asked for a written response from the chief executive mm. in relation to this. Because if I go to vote on something, and then I go out to sell something to people in the town, then when it doesn't actually happen, I'm actually being undermined. So where's the trust and the confidence there? Mm. You know, Maybe you're a nuisance, are you? Well, I think... Unfortunately, I, I don't like saying it, but I do think at times that uh, we're perceived by by a very small number of people uh, in the executive, a very small number of people to be that's a, been nuisance. a nuisance. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I mean, that's the impression that uh, it's hard not to get from all of this. Uh, that uh, you know, mind your own business seems to be <clears throat> the approach that's taken. There was a there was a que- que- uh, sorry, there was a comment made by the chief executive at the meeting on Sunday evening uh, where. She said, you don't know what you're doing. And I want this on record as you don't care what you're doing. Right. Now, 29 councils could have responded 
mm. aggressively and they didn't. They were upset by the comment yeah. and particularly given the fact that you spend a lot of your day on Friday and all day Saturday and then you come to a, to, to a meeting on Sunday. I, I haven't mm. voted against the budget mm. in eight years on the council until this year mm. and I voted against it three times. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I think a lot of the stuff we've been talking about probably is difficult for people to follow. But, um, you know, the point is councillors care. And I think most people know that whether they agree with their politics or not. uh, They know that you're usually passionate about what you do and you put a lot of time, effort uh, and dedication in to applying yourself Mm -hmm. to making these decisions, rightly or wrongly, the decisions are made. But um, to make an accusation like that sort of falls into line with everything that we've been hearing uh, and uh, what appears uh, to be an almost contemptuous uh, approach to requests for information. Yeah, look, as I said earlier on, I think the relationship is nearly a breaking point and uh, I'm not sure where we go from here. We had uh, uh, a mediator brought in last year to try and assess some of the problems that were going on and come up with some solutions and I'm calling now for the the, the councillors' representatives to meet up before Christmas to assess where we go forward on this issue because I may or may not be elected next year but whoever's going to be elected next year can't find themselves in a similar situation where this relationship is as bad and as toxic as it is this year. It just won't work and that's not good for democracy. Okay, I think we'll be hearing more about this in weeks to come. Thank you for coming into us uh, this morning once again, Labour Party Councillor P.O. Smith. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Now, from how one council is spending money to how another council is spending money, we go to County Meath and local Sinn Fein. Councillor Darren O'Rourke is on the line, and you're asking how is it that Meath County Council is spending more money this year on emergency accommodation than it did last year when it was paying for that accommodation for more people. Yes, Michael, and uh, thanks for the opportunity this morning. Um, These are figures that were released in response to a question that I submitted to the full council meeting in Mead, which happened yesterday. And the council, we we have been listening to... um, I suppose, a narrative over the course of this year that, that um, homeless figures in County Mead were, were significantly down. And that's something that, that is very much to be welcomed. But it's, it's, um, it wasn't exactly meeting the, the experience of, of our group of councillors. Um, but it can be hard to tell um, on an individual basis. But, but Mead County Council are reporting that their homeless figures are down in the region of 25% um, from um, some 217 in the full year last year to about 100, you know, Mm. heading for the region of 163 this year, which is is still far, far too many. Um, But at the same time, um, we weren't getting the figures in in terms of cost or expense, and, and that's something that I submitted. And we were given the figures for the, the last number of years. And it has shown that our figures already this year uh, exceed over a million euros um, and are, look like they're going to hit 1.1 million euros before the end of the year. And that's up 20% on last year. So that'll be up 20%. So, our, so you're our talking 25% fewer people and 20% more spent on them. Exactly. Mm. And, that, and I'm just raising a question here. For, for me, those numbers don't add up. So there's something happening that we're not getting. And, and I've asked subsequent questions and I'm waiting for the council mm. to come back to me in relation because we know... Well, there's a very right, simple answer, which is that the price of the accommodation has increased. But you'd be that, talking about increases in the line of 30% or something. Yeah, yeah no, 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 that, that was the point I was going to make. Mm. So we, so we 
know that that's something that w- that we can possibly explain some of this. Mm. But, but rent increases in Meath are, have been in the region of about 13%, again far too high, but not in the region of of 40% or 45% and that, that, that looks to be the case here. So so I'm I'm wondering what the problem is. What's happening? Are are are, are we paying a premium? Are are we, are we being taken advantage of by by landlords who recognize that the council are coming to them in a situation where they don't have options that they're you know they they, they have complete control on 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 supply or is it the case that the homeless figures aren't exactly as as presented and and you know we've seen that uh, to be the case in in other places and I, I know even in the last week we've had calls for the CSO to take over the counting of, of homeless figures because there's a, a big question mark in terms of and I know it's been the case in in Louth as well um, you know how how figures are calculated and dispute between local authorities and and the department in in that regard. It's an awful lot of money, isn't it? It's a huge amount of money, mm. and and I think that's a, a separate point. So this is a, um, and I, I know sometimes the the argument is made. Well, would you not spend the money? Of course, these people need it. Of of course, you spend the money, but you spend it because you're in the middle of a crisis that is avoidable, that is policy driven and and policy caused, and it is a huge transfer of wealth from the taxpayer to private landlords. The same way the €20 million Euros that we spend on HAP a year in Mead is a huge transfer of wealth from the tra- taxpayer to private landlords. And, and if we're going into a general election in the next number of months or whenever it happens, and we're having a debate about tax cuts, which the, the Taoiseach is proposing, you think if, if you're you know, a very wealthy landlord with a huge number of properties or a, you know, a massive investment fund, you're going to benefit from tax cuts and continue to receive this massive, massive transfer of wealth from the taxpayer to yourself. So I, I just think it's, a, it's an incredibly ludicrous situation. And there are positive things happening mm. in housing in, in, in my own area in Ashbourne and, and across Mead. But, it, it, you know, it, this is just another example of, of how this crisis has not been properly addressed and continues not to be properly addressed because we have the perfect example of, on the Department of Education site in, in, uh, in Ashbourne, you know, state-owned land that has been identified. Everybody agrees that it needs to deliver housing and we're still looking at a greenfield. All right, uh, you're to get a, a response, uh, some sort of a, a breakdown to how this money has been spent, I gather. Exactly, yes. Yeah. So I've, I've, look, I've literally asked the question that, that I've raised there. What, why the discrepancy here? What, explain to me and to, to the citizens of County Mead what, what exactly is going on here. Um, and I'm looking forward to a response from the council in that regard. Okay, a million a year. Uh, I'm sure that the council, if uh, it wasn't spending it on emergency accommodation, would find many ways of spending that money elsewhere. No, absolutely. So, and, and you know, we've we've made the you know we we had a budget debate a, co- a couple of weeks ago, and like we fundamentally said, some some people claimed that it was a great day for County Meath, and I said absolutely not. It reconfirms uh, that budget reconfirmed Meath's position at the bottom of the league table in terms of spending per head of capita. A big chunk of our spending in County Meath is on dealing with the housing crisis, which isn't delivering services in communities in terms of public green parks or playgrounds or street lights or footpaths or roads. And those are the types of services that people want the, the local authority to be focusing on. And, and I completely mm-hmm. agree with people in that, in that regard.
regard. Yeah, and uh, no doubt uh, a lot of uh, these issues will feed into the next general election. I gather you'll be a, a candidate uh, yourself uh, next time round in Mead East. It'll be an interesting election in Mead West. I'm sure you've been following Padder Tobin's uh, uh, attempts uh, to form a new political party and indeed uh, the coverage, an awful lot of coverage uh, given to that effort and indeed the huge turnout in Navan last night from. Yeah, there, there, there certainly was and, and I, I, I've, I've spoken at a number of, of uh, uh, internal Sinn Féin meetings over the past few years. I haven't spoken publicly in relation to, to recent events. Um, like it, it, Just to say on, on my own behalf um you know, it, it was a very, it is a, a very frustrating period for for, for us and Meath and Fane, but and, and we're very disappointed and, and um, frustrated, I suppose, with the with, with the actions of of uh, and decision that 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 Padder uh, felt he needed to come to. But we're very much on the um, the road to to contesting the the next general election in Meath West. We're, um, we're we're making plans to select a, a candidate and and. Um, I think we'll we'll mount a very strong campaign. We have a long track record in, in the constituency, and I recognise, I, you know, I, I I see the 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 approach that that Pater Tobin has taken, and um, you know, I, like I I would have have spoken in confidence with Pater, and I you know I've I I supported him and uh, tried to to pay, play my part in in making sure that 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 he didn't leave the party but he made the decision that he did and um I'm not sure um I suppose time will tell whether whether that was the the right decision for him or the right decision for 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 Sinn Féin and uh um you know I I I recognize the 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 coverage that the the event got last night um you know I I'm not sure I I think you know there might be a space there for a a pro life party um but I'm uh but I, I I have to say I I do raise serious questions in terms of uh, some of the arguments that have been made in terms of um, the lack of democracy and uh, yeah. clones or groupthink in the doll. Like at the end of the day, we're we're all involved in in democratic politics in representative democracy and like the people of County Meath and the people of of Ireland gave our TDs the the clearest mandate they could in in recent times in relation to the Eighth Amendment and some TDs including Padder um, felt that they 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 could ignore it and to suggest that there's you know another type of democracy um, that would deliver uh, a better type of outcome, I, I just think, is is. Uh, do you believe he was uh, treated fairly? I do. I, I I I believe the party and uh, it, like it, it for me, it was literally democracy at, at play. Um, Padder to being fought the good fight as he would see it internally within the party, um, but the the party as a whole at Ardeshna, um which is similar to what Padder seems to be talking about now in terms mm. of. A movement, a grassroots movement that tells the leadership what to do. Well, that's exactly what happened in Sinn Féin that Padder had a, a major problem with. I, I, I completely respect his position in relation to the Eighth Amendment as, as an individual. Um, but I have to say it's, it, it's also the type of thinking that delivered a regime in Ireland that, um, you know, was very very brutal to to women, and I'm glad. I will be glad when 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 it uh, okay. when that regime is gone. And uh, you know, it's, uh, I'm disappointed to. 
for Sinn Féin to have lost Padder to Bean, um, but we're moving on um, because we've been left with no other choice um, and we intend to, to continue on the work of, of delivering a united Ireland of equals and, and we'll make no apology for that. All right, look, thanks uh, for joining us uh, this morning. Uh, Sinn Féin Councillor on Meath County Council, Darren O'Rourke. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Time now, as is usual, around this time of Tuesday for our weekly visit to the Garda Crime Desk. As usual, there's a number of incidents Garda are investigating locally and perhaps you can assist with those investigations. Detective Garda Tracy Brennan of Laytown Station joins us for this week's report and we begin with a burglary. This was at uh, the service station at Kessel Bellingham on the M1 motorway, was it? That's correct, Michael, yes. On the 28th of November last at approximately half four in the afternoon, a car, a Volkswagen car pulled up at the petrol pumps. Um, the male who was in the rear seat of the car got out and went into the store and into the staff area. He took a handbag, um, he removed the wallet and cash from the wallet. He put the wallet back in the handbag and went back into the staff area and left the bag behind. He then came out and filled up the car with fuel and went back into the store again and paid for the fuel with the stolen cash. Now, this male is described as being in his 20s, wearing a grey T-shirt and a grey tracksuit bottoms. And if anybody was around the area, it's a Volkswagen car he was in, a Touran. Um, anyone around the area of the Apple Green on the 28th of November and saw this car, saw this mail, to contact our D-Garda station at 041-687-1130. OK, and to, to Bellewstown Golf Club, which was broken into yesterday. That's correct, Michael. Last night at approximately 11 o'clock, the golf club in Bellewstown in County Mead was broken into. Um, there was extensive damage done. Um, they removed the pane of glass from the window to gain entry. Um, the area was ransacked and the till was taken. And if you saw anything or around the area of Bellustown last night at approximately 11pm 11 11 sorry, to contact Laytown Garda Station on 041-981-3320. We're in Navin next at the Fairgreen Car Park where Garda are investigating some criminal damage. That's correct. On the 2nd of December last um, that evening, two vehicles were damaged. They were parked up in the Fairgreen Car Park in Navin. Um, items were taken and just remind our listeners to be vigilant at this time of year and not to leave anything on show in the cars. Um, the Guardian Navin are investigating these two incidents um, and if you have any information to contact them on 046 907 To Dundalk and uh, robbery uh, from a person. This was at Icehouse Hill Park. That's correct. Um, on the 29th of November last at approximately quarter to 12 at night a uh, male was coming from the direction of Cox's Domain and he heard footsteps behind him. When he turned, um, he felt somebody grab his hood and punch him in the face. His iPhone 5 was taken uh, from his pocket and the males ran towards the direction of the Ice House Hill Park. Um, the male who was injured just has slight uh, minor damages, to minor scratches to his face, sorry, um, but he's OK after this incident. And the Guardian at Dundalk are looking for a listener's help if they're around that area of the Ice Hill, Ice House Hill Park in Dundalk to contact them on 0429388400. OK, uh, more criminality in Drogheda to report on next. That's correct. Yes, Michael. Um, on the 30th of November 2018, at approximately 20 past one in the morning, up in Leah Brega in a housing estate here in Drogheda, um, there was extensive damage done to a shed at the back of a house which actually caused damage to two other sheds 
um, at the back of other houses. So the Gardaí are looking to speak with anyone who was in the Leabraga area of Drogheda on the 30th of the 11th, 2018, at approximately 20 past one in the morning to contact them at Drogheda Garda Station on 041 Indeed, we heard uh, the Chief Fire Officer talk uh, about uh, the dangers associated with incidents like that and when petrol is used. We conclude in Laytown, though, and a burglary that took place at the pharmacy. That's correct. A burglary which happened on the 1st of December at approximately 2am in the morning at Stax Pharmacy in Laytown. Um, There was extensive damage trying to get into this property and when they did get in, they damaged a lot of property inside. Uh, They removed the till and a safe and also taken loose cash from the premises. And the Gardaí at Laytown are investigating this incident. And if anyone has any information around the area of the 1st of December 2018 at approximately 2am, to contact Laytown Garda Station on 041-981-3320. Detective Garda Tracy Brennan of Laytown Station, thank you indeed. We'll return to the Garda Crime Desk in around the same time on next Tuesday's programme and we'll return to you in around the usual time tomorrow morning but our time concludes today and God willing we'll see you at 9am on LMFM. Good morning, bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.